good to see everybody here tonight. We're continuing journey through Genesis. Didn't we have a great, great weekend? Sunday was amazing. Sunday was incredible. What a great day. Just God doing some awesome stuff, doing what God does. I expect more and more of that as we move along. I want to look at uh, Genesis tonight. We're going to be in chapter 17 and hopefully finish that up and then get into Genesis 18 before the night is over. Again, it's great to see all of you. I want to say a prayer before we get started. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Now, last week we looked at the name change, how God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and God changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And that made such a huge difference. That was the difference maker in their lives. Within one year of them getting their words lined up with the word, the word of God, then the manifestation took place. Isaac was born. So it was significant. We looked at that. Your faith sometimes has to follow your words. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Your faith will follow your words. I don't mean you say gold Cadillac so many times and you get a gold Cadillac. But when God makes you a promise, if you'll put your words into action and begin to claim and declare that promise, you may not see it. It may be something difficult for you to believe. But I'm just telling you, listen to what I'm saying. You start saying it anyway. You start claiming it anyway with the words of your mouth and your faith will follow. Before long, you'll start believing it. You'll start acting in accordance with those words, and God will do amazing things. That's what we looked at last week. But this week, we are looking at verses 10 and 14. I told you we looked at Abram's name change, skipped these, went down and talked about Sarah's name change. Now we need to hit these scriptures. So we're in Genesis 17, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God's saying this to Abraham. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, this is strange scripture. Is it not? Let's go ahead and declare that right now. I have to think that after God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and then God says this, it had to be like Gomer Pyle saying, surprise, 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 right? I mean, who saw this coming? It's not what you would think. Now, this tested Abraham's level of commitment like never before. Talk about this 99-year-old man 
going to the next level. And he had to share this wonderful news with all the men, the hundreds of men in his entourage. Every male child born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant has to be circumcised. Now think of the trust they had to have in Abraham's relationship with God. I mean, it's one thing for Abraham, but they have to listen to Abraham say, well, God told me to tell you this. Now, on the eighth day, a male child, it was commanded, would be circumcised. And if he was not, he would be cut off from his people, for he had broken, the Bible said, the covenant. In other words, this was something mandatory, it was required, it was essential. The amazing thing about Abraham is he obeyed right then and there. He went straight to his entourage. The men in his entourage told them he took care of business immediately. Now, it's fascinating to me, on the eighth day, a male child would be circumcised. Jesus Christ, on the eighth day, was circumcised. In the Old Testament, people were born into the covenant, into a relationship with God by way of being born into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Once they were born, they're, they're born blessed. They're born as a descendant of Abraham, but they're babies. They don't know this. They have to be taught about their God and the covenant into which they have been born. So in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, you were born and then taught. You were circumcised, and then later you were taught why. We looked at this in our expedition early church as we went through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 8, which is citing Jeremiah 31, says this in verse 7. Hebrews 8, 7. Are you with me? Strange scriptures, right? Awkward, weird scriptures, but very, very important. Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Listen, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. Everybody say mine. And write them on their hearts. Everybody say hearts. Now this is speaking of revelation where the Spirit of man, the Holy Spirit reveals to the Spirit of man truth. I will put my word on their 
hearts. I will put my thoughts, my laws, my ways in their minds, on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is bizarre language until you dive into it and and extract the richness of what is really being said here, which we will do in a moment. He says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What is he saying in this? We looked at it, like I said, in Expedition Early Church. In the old covenant, you were naturally or ethnically born into a relationship with God before you ever knew anything about it or him or the covenant. The reason why, of course, is because you were a baby. You couldn't know. That would be like me trying to explain to Lyra Jane. Hey, honey, let me tell you about God. You know what she's going to say to me? You know, she's cooing now, which is awesome. She's going to just make little noises. Does she grasp my Bible study? Honey, I'm going to read to you from the book of John. Oh, now. I'm not discounting the impact that that could have on her eventually. But at the moment, she doesn't grasp it because she's a baby. So here you have ethnically born Jews born into this blessed relationship with God, but they don't know anything about it. They have to be taught. That's why it says that in the new covenant, it's not that way. But he's saying, in essence, in the old covenant, they're born, have no clue, and every man has to be taught. Listen. Let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you about this this Savior. Let me tell you about our our great God. That's the idea. In the Old Covenant, you're born, and then you have to be taught. So you had to be taught about the God with whom you had a relationship already. That's Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you know, and then you were born. Jesus put it this way. He said, you're born again. Now, John 1, listen to this. With that in mind, listen to this. I hope you're getting this. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe, listen to this, in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, not born ethnically into the family of Abraham, but who believed on the name of Jesus and were born of God. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, who was called the teacher, the preeminent teacher in Israel, Jesus told Nicodemus, you, Nicodemus, even you, 
must be born again. And it floored him. He had no comprehension. What are you saying? I'm a natural born, privileged, blessed son of Abraham. But unlike the general rule in the Old Testament where you're born and then taught, Jesus was saying, listen, in my kingdom, people are taught first and then they choose whether to believe or not, whether to act on that faith or not. You hear the word first, you believe, and then you obey. You're not born into it. In other words, let me give you some context. This is why I'm discussing this. We're dealing with circumcision. How does this apply to that? In the New Testament, the equivalent to circumcision is baptism. Water, baptism. The book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, say it like this. In him, in Jesus that is, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So the equivalent in the New Testament to circumcision is water baptism. That is a wet baptism. That's not a dry baptism. That is water baptism. And it is because of this very reason. Stick with me. It's for this very reason that the Roman Catholic Church baptizes babies. Think about it. Circumcised on the eighth day. Water baptism is the New Testament equivalent. Why would you not baptize babies? Reformed theology. The reform, they call themselves... Proto-Baptist, that's the theological term. They follow the Heidelberg Catechism. They baptize babies because they're taking that idea of circumcised on the eighth day and they will baptize a child in infancy. At life point, we do not do that. We do not baptize babies eight days, eight weeks. And I believe we can prove scripturally that the New Covenant Church in the book of Acts did not do so either. And the reason why is like I've already mentioned. In the New Covenant, you know first, and then you choose to proceed. Now, I get Roman Catholic protocol, I get baptized the baby, and then I get confirmation and those types of things. But in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in that original model, they didn't baptize babies. The people had to be of a certain age where they could comprehend and understand what was going on. They had to hear about Jesus, understand to some extent the new covenant, what Christ was doing for them, and they had to choose to proceed. 
It's like Mr. William this past Sunday said, I want to be water baptized. He heard about Jesus first, made a decision to follow him in the New Testament equivalent and be water baptized in Jesus' name. Jesse here was baptized just a few weeks ago. Cindy's baptism, just because he was born to Cindy does not mean he got it naturally, ethnically, being her son. He had to hear about Jesus first and then make a decision to act upon that knowledge. I choose to obey the words of Jesus, to be buried in his name, to rise, to walk in newness of life. I once was blind, but now I see. I, was, I used to be a little kid. I didn't get this stuff. Now I get it, and I choose to follow, and I'm going to follow in this act of water baptism. Are you with me? Here's the deal. Faith is not blind. We have a misnomer. I get what we're trying to say when we say, well, I just acted on blind faith. But scriptural faith is not blind. Listen listen to this, Romans chapter 10. Are you with me? This is exciting. Can you imagine? We're in the book of Colossians. We're in the book of Romans. And we're in the book of Hebrews. And we're supposed to be studying the book of Genesis. Check it out, Romans chapter 10. Listen listen to this. With with all of that in mind, listen to what Paul's. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles but he's got such a heart for the Jews. Peter has such a heart for the Jews, or or, or for for the Gentiles, but he was an apostle to the Jews. It's crazy the way the Lord works it out, at least in my thinking. It's just the way the Lord wants it, I suppose. I'm not saying you're crazy, Lord. But it's, it's amazing to me. Paul has such a heart for the Jews. Listen to what he says. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that's what he's saying, doesn't mean you're saved. For I bear them witness. I, I, I know this personally. They have a zeal for God, but not according to what? For they being what? Ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, and he goes through these things. He talks about calling on the name of the Lord, which is actually, at least in a lot of scholars' minds, a reference to water baptism calling on the name of the Lord in water baptism. And then look at verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe? Listen. In him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, 
who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is based on knowledge, not ignorance or blindness. You cannot believe beyond your knowledge. That's why we send missionaries to foreign fields, faraway places where people have not heard of Jesus. Why? So we can tell them about Jesus. They have to know. They have to know so they can believe. In the old covenant, you were born into the family. There were things done to you. You were raised up and taught about the covenant. In the new covenant, you're ignorant. You have to hear the message first. And as many as believe to them, he gives the power, the right, the privilege to become the sons of God. Are you with me? Now, here's what's interesting to me, and there's so much more on that, but listen to this. Circumcision was not uncommon in Canaan when the Lord told Abraham about this. There's a lot of ancient documents, writings, etc., confirming the fact that this was practiced among the Canaanites. So what made the Israelites different? What made their circumcision any different than the Canaanites? Here's what made it different. They did it in obedience to the Word of God. They did it in obedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Obviously, the child did not make that decision. The general rule was it would be children who were circumcised, but there were proselytes. There were adults who came into the covenant, and they had to go through and make a decision, kind of like we do in the New Testament. But children, when they were circumcised, they didn't know anything about what was going on. And so it was an act of faith by their parents. In the New Covenant, it's still an act of faith when it comes to baptism, but it's not the parent's faith. It is, I hear, I acknowledge, I make a decision, and I follow through. But when it comes to the distinction, in Israel, they made a, 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 a decision to follow and to obey based on the word. The Canaanites, for whatever reason, they did what they did. Let's bring that into water baptism. Anybody can jump in a swimming pool and say Jesus. A drunk can swing off of a tree swing and land in the river and say Jesus. And it doesn't mean they were water baptized in the name of Jesus. So it's not just the water, but it is faith in the name that accesses all that heaven has prescribed for someone who is baptized in the name above all names. Are you with me? So it's still faith. It's faith in the name. And we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes as well. Uh, look at verses 22 through 27. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, all who were bought with his money, every male among them, all the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God said to him. Same day. 
Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael, his son, was 13 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. The very same day, Abraham was circumcised in his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, they were all circumcised with him. It's interesting to me that within 90 days, Sarah was pregnant. Ishmael was the product of an uncircumcised Abram and an Egyptian. Isaac was the product of a circumcised Abraham and Sarah. Now, let's look at chapter 18. Woo, we got past that. Hallelujah. Chapter 18. Everybody go, thank you, Jesus. Verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts that you may pass by in as much as you have come to your servant. Then they said, do as you have said. So you got these three visitors that show up at Abraham's doorstep. One of them is the Lord himself. The other two are angels. They look like regular Joes. This looks like, you know, Ezekiel, Mephibosheth, and Joseph, whatever. It just looks like three regular guys. But somehow Abraham, and I don't fully understand how, but he knew they were special. He knew that these were two angels and this was Jehovah, Almighty God himself. And, you know, the book of Hebrews says that some have entertained angels unaware. Well, Abram was fully aware. He knew what was going on. It's kind of like when Jesus tamed the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, There was apparently no glow. They looked like people, but Abraham knew. Angels, God himself. Abraham kind of goes like you probably would as well in the freak-out mode. We kind of do that anyway, don't we, when we have unexpected guests show up at our front door? Can you imagine the unexpected guests being two angels of the Lord and the Lord himself? He's in total freak-out mode. Oh, let me get you something. So so it's like, like we have guests. Can you imagine if the president or the governor, VIP, show up? So here he has two angels and the Lord himself. Look at verses 6 through 8. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. We're going to have pancakes, right? And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. This took some time. Goes out, slaughters the animal, 
cuts it all up, gets it all ready, cooks it up. Now, this is actually hilarious. This is actually hilarious, and let me tell you why. Because Abraham, the father of Jews, served a meal to God himself and the angels that was not, listen to me, kosher. This was not a kosher meal. Jews do not eat beef, milk, and butter together to this day. Look it up. Twice in Exodus, once in Deuteronomy, the Scripture says the Jews were forbidden from cooking a calf in its mother's milk. And because of this, they made some guardrail rules to make sure that never happened. Because who knows if the milk you're serving with your beef came from the mother of the cow you're eating, and somehow, all together in your stomach, it mixes and it cooks, and you've broken the commandment of the Lord. Now, Abraham didn't know this. This is prior to the law. He never even considered it. But, I mean, it is kind of funny that there's Jehovah, two holy angels of God, and he, the father of the Jews goes out and cooks an unkosher meal and serves it up. Now, verses 9 through 14, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, like reiterating this point. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. <laughs> saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? So the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. God was shoring up the promises he had made years before to them, they had begun to say, I am Abraham, I am Sarah, I am Abraham, I am Sarah. They were self-identifying according to God's promises. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Here's God saying it again. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a kid. I'm telling you, you're going to have a kid. And even though she wanted this more than anything and had for many, many years, when the Lord said it once again, she finds it hard to believe, even though she's been saying, I'm Sarah, you're Abraham, I'm Sarah, you're Abraham. It was hilarious to her. She LOL'd. She was like, LOL. And, and the Lord calls her out on it. But to me, it's funny. If you're the father of the Jews, you just served an unkosher meal to Jehovah himself and some of his angels. I mean, you might as well laugh it up, right? I mean, it's already funny. Here's what I love about the Lord. He doesn't say, all right, I've given you this promise over and over and over again, and you're just laughing at it. No more promise for you. I'm going to give this promise to somebody who will take it and run with it. Instead, God deals with her unbelief. First of all, calls her out on it. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say, right? I mean, God is watching over you. He's checking you out. He knows everything you do. She, she, it's hilarious to me. We'll say it in a second. She lies. She's like, I didn't do that. 
I mean, she's telling God this, right? This is God. Abraham's in freak-out mode. Ah, we got to cook. It's Jehovah's Jehovah. And some angels. And he's like cooking this meal. She snickers. She laughs. And he says, and, and, and he calls her out on it. You laughed. And she's like, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. Not me. I would never do something like that. It's just hilarious. This is, are you guys with me tonight? Man, it's so quiet in here. And so, but, but instead of like rebuking her, and saying, I'm going to go take this to somebody who cares. God deals with her unbelief. He doesn't take away the promise. He says, listen, honey, there is an appointed time. And I am telling you, I will be back next year and you will have a child. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The Lord addresses our difficulty in believing His promises by asking the question, is anything too hard for me? It's rhetorical. The obvious answer is no, of course not. I'm going to tell you something. God can triumph even over weak faith. He can take a little bit of faith and move a mountain Guzik points out that when God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Listen to this. The word hard is the same word in Isaiah 9, 6 for wonderful. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and his name will be called wonderful. When God What God would do in Abraham and Sarah was wonderful. It was full of wonder, but it was not impossible to God. It may have been hard and impossible to mankind, but it was wonderful and it was possible with God. The name of Jesus, I love that is a wonderful name. His name shall be called wonderful. Why? Because in his name, nothing shall be impossible. No wonder we are baptized in his name. There is no sin that that name can take, can, can, cannot erase. There, there is no, it, nothing that you have done that is just too hard for that name to, to eradicate, to forgive, to bring about a remission as if you had never sinned. That name is a wonderful name. No wonder we say, isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? The name of Jesus does the hard stuff. The name of Jesus takes care of the difficulties. And in the new covenant, we are leaning on that name. I heard some people talking the other day about Old Testament names. And they were talking about the compound names. You had the Tetragrammaton, which would be the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. We transliterated it into Jehovah. But it's a self-identifying name of God. And you would have these attachments to it that would describe different aspects of God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my healer. All these different names of God. But listen. Those are even hard to say. Sid Kenu. There's a bunch of them. But when you say the name of Jesus, you've covered every ground, everything that those names stood for. In the name of Jesus. 
there is power. That's why the Lord said, all power is given to me. Now go in my name and preach and teach and lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He said, cast out demons in my name. He said, believe in my name and anything is possible because the name of Jesus is powerful. Now, as a proof text for this, I just thought we ought to go to Acts chapter 3. I know we're in Genesis, but let's hit Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, let me just tell you the story. They go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They pass the gate beautiful. I've preached about this many times. It, it was the gate beautiful. The word beautiful is one of the words for time in the Greek. It means the most beautiful time. It, it's, it's not chronos. It's not, it's not uh, kairos. It's another word that, that means the most beautiful time. And Jesus had passed this man many, many times. But it wasn't the most beautiful time for the man to be healed. And Peter and John are on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. And, and the man looks to them expecting to receive. He's begging. He's, he's a lame man. He's begging to receive. And he says, uh, I, I, I want something from you. He's expecting. And Peter says, we don't have any silver or gold on us. But here's what we do have. And what we do have, we're going to give to you. In the name, in, in the name. In the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand. And before the man could walk, he yanks him up. And as he comes up, his legs and ankle bones receive strength. And this man went leaping and running through the temple, singing and praising the name of Jesus. Listen, nothing's too hard for the name of Jesus. Nothing's too hard for the name of Jesus. And, and Peter says how this happened. Verse 11, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are all witnesses, and his name through faith in his name. It wasn't just saying the name, but it was through faith in the name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Let me just remind you, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is faith to accomplish hard things found in that name. Wonderful things can happen in the name of Jesus. It may look impossible to the rest of the world, but anything is possible in the name of Jesus. Do you believe it? Come on, lift your hands to him right now. Thank you, Jesus, for your saving name. That's why whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to tell you something. I may be preaching about it more. Don't give up on your dreams. Don't give up on the dream that God put in your heart. Don't give up on the promises that he made to you. They may seem outlandish. They may seem ridiculous. They may seem impossible. 
but the name of Jesus is a wonderful name. Nothing is too hard for Almighty God. Let me ask you, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Nothing is too hard. All things are possible. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh. It's just hilarious. For she was afraid. You know, he called her out on it. And he said, nope, you did laugh. Isn't that funny? She's like, I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. I love the humanness of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, he just asked the question, right, is anything too hard for God? Like maybe he knows you laughed. And she's like, oh, I didn't laugh. Just great. Verses 16 through 19. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Listen to this. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. But this is so powerful. Do you see that? It's so much. That, that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't even had Isaac yet. The Lord's not even talking to Abraham. It's a conversation among themselves. Shall I hide from Abraham? Since surely he's going to be. In other words, like Abraham had to just be encouraged just to overhear. Like it's like no doubt in God's mind. Well, surely he's going to become a great nation. I mean. Can we hide this from him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. He has no child with Sarah and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteous and righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God begins to reveal things to Abraham. Because he's in a covenant relationship. I'm going to tell you something. God will reveal things to you. When you commit and you walk in relationship with him, God will reveal things to you that he will not reveal to just anybody. He could have kept Abraham in the dark, but he had partnered with Abraham through covenant, and he wanted to share his plans and purposes with Abraham. When you're in a relationship with God, he invites you into the green room, into the VIP room. That's really what the prayer room is all about. You hear what I'm saying? It's not all about just saying, I love you, Jesus, I love you. Sometimes you need to shut up and listen what the Lord is trying to show you. He wants to tell you some things about where you are, where you're going, some things in your life. He wants to speak to you and give you some direction. He might want to reveal some things from that book. If you just start going through that book and say, God, show me the truth in your word. He wants to show you things. You have an all-access pass into the things of God. He wants to share His will with you. You are the apple of His eye. He loves you with an everlasting love. We look at it like this. God has secrets that He doesn't want to tell anybody. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Who can ever know about old precocious God? You just never know about old God. That's not His heart. He's like, Shall I hide this 
It's rhetorical again. No, I want to reveal it to him. He's my partner. He is the my friend is the wording. Abraham was the friend of God. Verses 20 through 23, I'm coming to a close. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? So he understands God is looking to destroy, which we'll get into next time, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities. And and it wasn't, as I'll get more into it, it, it wasn't that God was afraid of the sin in those cities. Sin does not scare God. Otherwise, he'd be scared of you and me. He'd have never come near us. Woo! You act all sanctified, but I know better. It wasn't that. It, it was a threat. These, these people were a threat to the plans and purposes of God. We'll, we'll talk about it. But here's the point. Here's what's amazing. Abraham, because of the covenant relationship he had with God, he gets up in God's face and begins to negotiate. This is a beautiful picture of prayer and intercession. God says, I'm going to wipe them out, and I want to tell you about it. And Abraham says, God, I really wish you wouldn't do that. If there are 50 righteous in the city, will you hold off your hand? And you know what God says? God doesn't say, you just a puny little 99-year-old man. I've been wasting all these years on you and your stupid wife. And now you want to try to give me some advice. No, he respects this man with whom he is in covenant. He says, I'm open to that. I'm going to tell you something. I mean, God knows best. God is sovereign. Don't get me wrong, but I'm going to tell you something. You have influence in the realm of the Spirit more so than you know. You know, in Isaiah, the cry went out, the, 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 the people are going to hell like a bullet, in essence, is what he's saying. And here's God over here, and he said, I look for a man. I look for an intercessor. I look for a go-between. This world needs some intercession going down. Our families need some intercessors that are saying, God, would you just hold off judgment? Give me one more chance. I want to go over here and work with them. I want to share your love with them, God. Just hold off for a little bit. There is something to intercessory prayer. You know, the the Calvinists, and I call them the hyper-Calvinists. I actually call it super hyper-Calvinism expialidocious, right? People are super hyper-Calvinistic, expialidocious. It just means that people want to put everything off on God, like God's in control and there ain't nothing you can do. That is not true. God is in control, but he's put some authority and power into the earth in his body, and that is you and me, brothers and sisters, in this new covenant. 
He's looking for some intercessors. He's looking for some prayers that will make the difference. Stand with me right now. I don't know if you know it or not, but we have intercessors sprinkled across this auditorium every service, particularly on every Sunday morning. And when I'm giving the altar call and I'm saying, listen, this may be the end of our service, but this could be the beginning of the rest of your life. If you've never turned to Jesus in the first place, when I say that, there are people all across this auditorium that go into intercessory prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus. And quietly but powerfully reaching out in the Spirit, binding spirits, praying that the Holy Spirit would be released. And, and how does that work? I don't understand all that. I'm just telling you there's something to it. There's people interceding all across the auditorium. Father, I pray that you would just loose people, God, and, and, and let, let them come out from under the influence of, of, of the evil spirits that have corrupted and blinded them, Lord, and let them make a clear, a clear decision for you. And, and they're praying all across this building because that kind of intercession is effective. And when it's not present, the devil wins. I might have to preach on that a little more. But I'm just going to tell you, we see Abraham here. and He had so many pieces missing, but he gets right up in God's face. and says, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And God says, I'm open, son. We'll look at it next time. 24 through 33, negotiates all the way down to 10. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham had power with God. He was a covenant partner with God. Friend doesn't mean buddy. It's a covenant term. Abraham's enemies were God's enemies. God's enemies were now Abraham's enemies. Very, very powerful. Amen.